Hey, everybody. It is Friday, January 19th. We've now made it through three weeks of 2024. Congratulations to everybody. Mosh, it's, it really is just flying by. Yeah, three weeks down, 49 to go. <laughs> but who's counting? By the way, <laughs> I should note, this is the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wininu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, January 19th, many of you may not know this, is National Popcorn Day. So uh, all the big theater chains out there are offering unlimited popcorn. There's special deals going on to try to get you in. So if you're a big popcorn fan, my wife, Alex, is among them. Head to the theater today and you can dive into just unlimited buckets of it (laughs) if you Google uh, your local chain. But if you are watching a movie, be prepared that the entire time people are going to be chomping on popcorn. (laughs) If that's your pet peeve. Um, Anyway, happy National Popcorn Day to everybody and appreciate you all tuning in as we head into another weekend. My favorite popcorn, kettle corn. What about you? I think that's one of the better popcorns out there, Jill. Salty and sweet. Yeah, because the really cheesy popcorn's not for me. Plus, they get your hands all icky. So I think kettle corn's the way to go. I'm on Team Kettle Corn as well. All right, let's get to some news here. We're talking impeachment, and this time, not President Biden or former President Trump. It is DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And to one of the root causes of the border crisis, Ecuadorians have been fleeing their country to try to come to the United States, and the situation there has gotten even worse. Immigration, a top issue in the 2024 presidential election. All eyes on New Hampshire, where Donald Trump versus Nikki Haley is heating up. Or is it? Yeah, we'll give you a sense of the latest poll numbers from up there. Overseas, Pakistan has retaliated with strikes inside Iran as tensions spill over. Yes, in a region full of conflict, another one appears to have erupted in the last couple days. Back here in the U.S., drug makers are raising the prices of Ozempic, Munjaro, and hundreds of other drugs. Just what we need. And Cheryl Sandberg says that she is leaving Meta's board. So what's next for her? How to get more sleep. Hint tech is not helping. Yeah, we have some new data on how Americans are sleeping and where they're getting sleep and where they're not getting sleep. Plus, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. What we are watching, reading and eating. Jill, I'm all about the halloumi cheese. Ooh, can't wait. All right, we begin with impeachment talk on Capitol Hill, and this time the fast-moving effort by House Republicans to impeach the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security. The House Homeland Security Committee held its second and final impeachment hearing regarding Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Thursday over how he has handled the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. Republicans say that he has simply failed to enforce border laws. It comes as House Republicans are also pushing to impeach President Biden, But the Mayorkas effort is moving much faster. The secretary has not yet attended the hearing. The White House calls this far-right extreme politics. They say that the allegations against him are baseless. Mayorkas has agreed to testify at a later date. Thursday's hearing included testimony from families who have lost loved ones from fentanyl overdoses or violent crime. Officials say that cartels are one of the primary sources of fentanyl in the U.S., One mother whose daughter died from fentanyl poisoning said, quote, in my humble opinion, Mr. Mayorkas's border policy is partially responsible for my daughter's death. His wide open border policy allows massive quantities of poisonous fentanyl into our country. 
The committee's vote on the impeachment resolution is planned for January 31st. If it is passed, which it likely will with the GOP's majority, we could see this taken to the full House floor as early as February. Mayorkas, by the way, would be the first cabinet official to be impeached since 1876. Yeah, you're getting impeached and you're getting impeached and you're getting impeached. Feels <laughs> like the, the feeling these days. Remember, impeachment in the House. We went through this twice with Trump. Basically a slap in the wrist uh, from the House because it's the Senate where a trial happens for potential conviction. And as we know, historically, at least when it comes to presidential impeachments, no one has been convicted. Not Andrew Johnson, not Bill Clinton and not Donald Trump twice. Mayorkas, of course, if this goes through on the House floor and it appears Republicans, even in swing districts, even in places that are facing Democrats, moderate Republicans are up for this because of the resonance the immigration issue has right now. So there is a chance that the House could move ahead here on the full floor next month, impeach Mayorkas. It goes to the Senate. Well, who has the majority in the Senate right now? Democrats. So uh, extremely beyond unlikely, 0.00001% that this could happen. Actually, uh, fair to say 0%, Jill. As they control the Senate, they would still have some semblance of uh, hearings and then a trial. But to convict in the Senate uh, takes two thirds of the Senate. So you would somehow need all Republicans plus a third of Democrats agreeing to do this. Again, not happening, but something Republicans are looking to do. And then, of course, there's the Biden impeachment that potentially could proceed here. We'll watch that in the House as well. But staying on the border here, we've been watching closely the fight uh, that has been escalating between the Biden administration and the governor of Texas, the state of Texas, about policies on the border. CNN is reporting that the Biden administration is giving Texas just a few days here to stop blocking U.S. Border Patrol access to several miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. So you have a standoff, essentially. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security says that Texas authorities barred federal authorities from a certain area of the border. That was an area where we, they saw the drowning deaths of three migrants, a woman and two children. So there's a whole back and forth here between the feds and the state of Texas. Texas not backing down, though. The attorney general in the state, Ken Paxton, saying the U.S. Department of Homeland Security needs to stop wasting scarce time and resources suing Texas and start enforcing the immigration laws Congress already has on the books. Jill, it comes as right now there are negotiations happening between Republicans in the U.S. Senate and President Biden on new immigration funding, more measures uh, to deal with the record number of migrants coming across the border. Unclear whether the House Republican majority will join in on that. Remember, immigration here is pretty much the hottest topic when it comes to uh, voters. And there's a sense among the Trump folks that they don't want immigration to necessarily be resolved right now because it's a very resonant political issue. So it's unclear whether all the Republicans will cooperate with a deal with President Biden, knowing without a deal, they can hammer the White House much more on immigration in the coming months ahead of the November election. So just one thing to watch out for is you watch the headlines about whether they can strike a compromise or not the sort of political implications underlying all of this. And Moshe, as we talk about one of the root causes for the crisis at the border, the situation in Ecuador continues to deteriorate. We reported on that attack uh, last week on a TV studio in the country. Masked men burst into a public TV channel studio during a live broadcast and threatened the studio team at gunpoint. Well, now one of the prosecutors who was investigating that attack has been killed. Cesar Suarez, he was shot dead in one of the port cities in Ecuador. It isn't totally clear if his shooting death is related to the investigation, but the killing is just the latest in a surge of violence across the country. Parts are just now being completely overrun by drug gangs. 
Yeah, and that comes as last year you saw the assassination of a presidential candidate in Ecuador by one of the drug gangs, the current president's vowing to fight these drug gangs that have overrun the country, um, led many people to leave. Ecuadorians are among the fastest growing groups approaching the U.S. border because of the crisis in their country. It comes as you've also seen 7 million Venezuelans leave the country in recent years as the economy in that country has fallen apart with government chaos there. Uh, we've been hearing from members of the Monus community who uh, are living in Ecuador, who are from Ecuador, uh, saying the towns there feel like ghost towns. People are scared to leave their homes because of the violence perpetrated by these drug gangs. And we mention this, of course, because you know the migrant crisis on the border has some root causes, and this is one of them, at least in one of the countries. But you're seeing other issues in Cuba, in Haiti, in Nicaragua, in El Salvador, etc. And so uh, in many cases, that's one of the reasons you're seeing migrant populations coming from those countries where people are very concerned about having a long-term future. And bringing it back to the U.S., immigration policies, as you were mentioning before, turning into one of the biggest issues in the 2024 presidential race Speaking of which, Monday is the New Hampshire primary, and we do have some new poll numbers. Yeah. Uh, on immigration, by the way, we should mention Iowa voters uh, made it the top issue for many. It was bigger than the economy. You're seeing some of that in early poll numbers in New Hampshire. As far as the top line, what to expect in just four days time in the New Hampshire primary, uh, two new polls out in the past 48 hours, one from St. Anselm College in New Hampshire, showing Trump is up by double digits, by 14 points. And there was a second poll out done by the Boston Globe and NBC News that also found a 14-point advantage for former President Trump over Nikki Haley. Uh, it comes as New Hampshire, really the most important state for her right now, the state where she probably has the best early chance to beat or get very close to Trump. But four days out, a 14-point advantage if these polls hold true here. And now you see two of them that have a reliable history, uh, certainly quite a number to overcome. It'll really depend on her churning out moderates, independents, undeclared voters in the state where there's no real competitive Democratic primary. So the hope is on the part of the Haley campaign that she sees all these people turning out because when you look at Republican voters, that's where Trump has a massive advantage. So she needs independents to come out. Uh, it comes as Trump has really sharpened his attacks on Haley. We've been hearing from a number of you in New Hampshire, you sending us pictures of just the text messages you're getting. Some of you getting nine, 10 mailers a day, and they're all about Haley, either yay Haley or Haley's terrible. The Haley terrible stuff coming from super PACs supporting former President Trump. Uh, some of them reading Nikki Haley loves China. Nikki Haley is funded by Democrats, globalists, and Wall Streets. Nikki Haley is weak on immigration. You get the sense of the various arguments they're going for there. Haley, though, has been more careful in how she's attacking Trump, simply saying that Trump and Biden both are the two sides of the same coin, too old, past their prime, consumed by the past. So she, again, we mentioned it on the pod uh, yesterday, criticizing Trump, but not going there, there, there. Why? Well, there's the potential that he could choose her as a vice president. That is among the stories coming out in the past couple of days. There's a war within the Trump campaign about who will be his VP, how loyal that VP has to be, who it should be. Trump, very Machiavellian, though. It's all about who will get me uh, a win. And so I guess he's still open to Nikki Haley here. And Nikki Haley knows that if she gets too aggressive on him, she closes that door. Trump only has four years left. Whomever is Trump's VP starts from the White House for a run in 2028. He only has one term left to serve because he already served one term. The Constitution says you can only have two terms. Becoming his VP 
if he wins, is an incredible position launching pad uh, to the White House in 2028. Nikki Haley has been talked about here, though, given the frustration among some Trump folks, frankly, the hatred some Trump folks have for Nikki Haley. They are looking at people who've been more, quote unquote, loyal to Trump. That includes Elise Stefanik, the congresswoman from New York, who you might know was one of the people who grilled those university presidents at that hearing in December. Uh, There's the governor of South Dakota, uh, Kristi Noem, Sarah Sanders, uh, some others he's looking at. Vivek Ramaswamy. He's dreaming of it. (laughs) Vivek would love it. I think one thing you know about Trump is that he doesn't want anybody that sort of uh, distracts from him or is louder than him, that doesn't make him the center of attention. And Ramaswamy, well, that's his entire shtick, is he is, you know, like sort of Trump too. He is the center of attention. He is the main attraction. And I think if I was Donald Trump, I'd be very skeptical that Vivek would make it about me for four years as opposed to about him. Hence his pick of Mike Pence, who was pretty vanilla. Who was pretty vanilla. But then, of course, Mike Pence was not loyal all the way as far as Trump is concerned on January 6th. Pence was like, well, this is what the Constitution says, sir. And Trump was like, this is what I need you to do. And Pence says, no, thank you. So I think there's even that sort of extra push on the Trump side is I need someone who is the most loyal of loyal of loyal and will basically do what I say. And so uh, there's that. And then it's also a concern that Pence was establishment. He was sort of traditional Republican. And there's a group of uh, Trump supporters who are like, enough with traditional Republicans. Nikki Haley is a traditional Republican, uh, is establishment. We need somebody who is MAGA to MAGA to MAGA, who's just like uh, you, Donald. And so, I, you know, that'll be part of the VP debate. And again, does it seem premature to have this discussion? Not as far as Trump's concerned. If he's got a 14-point lead in, in New Hampshire, as far as they think, next Wednesday, this race is over if Haley can't win in New Hampshire. So they're already looking to the next thing. Okay, we have plenty of news after the break, but wanted to mention a couple of our amazing sponsors. For one, Factor Meals. I know, Mosh, you and I are both pressed for time in our homes and do want to eat healthy and nutritious meals. So that's why we are so excited about Factor. It's America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. They can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. So if you've got a New Year's resolution that you want to eat a little bit better, Factor can definitely help you with that. I have been loving them. You just grab them straight from the fridge, heat them up, and they are legit delicious. It's not like getting a frozen grocery store dinner. And Moshe, in your house, I know you do like to cook. In my house, not well, so much. Well, hold on. I, I, I should be clear. My wife is a great cook. Yeah, I true. aspire one day to cook, yes. <laughs> um, but just to not have to deal with the chopping, prepping, cleaning up, and still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. Uh, can't beat it. Factors, fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. So all you've got to do is heat and enjoy. You could choose from more than 35 weekly meals. They have lunch to go, like grain bowls and salad toppers that don't need a microwave at all. There are cold-pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies ready in two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head over to factormeals.com slash monews50 and use the code monews50 to get 50% off. That is monews50 at factormeals.com. Again, uh, monews50 to get 50% off. 
All right, now to one of our longtime partners, Athletic Greens, uh, AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been drinking AG1 for more than a year now. Jill has as well. When I started drinking it, I could feel a real difference in my energy. And especially now that I'm a new dad, I can use all the help that I can get. AG1, really a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your universal needs, that is prebiotics, probiotics, all the vitamins uh, that you need, as well as immune support. It's just one scoop of powder with water in the morning, and then you can get on with your day knowing you've gotten more than 70 key vitamins and minerals. The great thing over at AG1 is they continue to optimize the formula, adding the latest and greatest to ensure that you're getting everything that you need. And what's great is they're offering a special deal to the Monus community. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. You can try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, as well as five free travel packs. If you head over to drinkag1.com slash monews, that is drink. A G the number one dot com slash mo news again a one year supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs as part of that special deal for this community. Okay, time now for the speed read. Starting overseas, more tension in the Middle East, and this time it is between Iran and Pakistan. From the Associated Press, Pakistan launched airstrikes against alleged militant hideouts inside of Iran on Thursday, killing at least nine people as it retaliated for a similar attack days earlier by Iran, raising tensions with its neighbor as conflict across the region escalates. The unprecedented attacks by both Pakistan and Iran on either side of their border appeared to target Baluch militant groups with similar separatist goals. So Baluchistan is a region that lies on the Iran-Pakistan border, and there's been crossfire there for years among separatist groups. Right. So the countries are accusing each other of providing a haven to the groups in their respective territories. The flare-up between Iran and Pakistan comes, of course, as the Middle East remains unsettled by Israel's war with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And on the heels of Iranian airstrikes late Monday in Iraq and Syria, those airstrikes were in response to a suicide bombing in Iran by the Islamic State in early January that killed over 90 people. Yeah, so there's a lot happening here. Uh, As you guys tune in every day, you're like, wait, there was the Houthis in Yemen, there's Israel in Gaza, there's Hezbollah in Israel, there's the U.S. in Iran, there's ISIS attacking Iran. And now, Baluchistan. Yes, now Baluchistan. Let's talk about it so you you know can mention it at a dinner with your family tonight. <laughs> the issue here is that Iran and Pakistan have always had a challenging relationship. And when you zoom out, you know, oftentimes you look at a map of the Middle East and you always kind of see Iran to the right of the picture, right? Well, if you zoom out further to the right of Iran is Afghanistan and Pakistan. So they got issues on one side of the border, as well as, of course, the Middle East, which is something we've probably been more familiar with. In recent months. Well, Iran and Pakistan, both Muslim countries, uh, different agendas, and they've had their own issues through the years, though, for the most part, pretty good diplomatic relations. But these tit for tat strikes now across the border, the concern is that things could escalate further here. And it's especially concerning because Pakistan is one of the dozen or so countries in the world with nuclear weapons. Iran, for its part, has been emboldened. Right. We've been talking about how they're using these proxy groups, the Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, to push their agenda, their proxy fight with the Saudis, their proxy fight with the U.S. Iran, though, this week, not just using the proxy groups, actually doing direct attacks themselves. Right. They launched strikes in Syria, a friendly country, but they were fighting ISIS targets there because ISIS, remember, conducted that attack in Iran at the memorial service of Soleimani 
in recent weeks. Then they launched attacks in Iraq, claiming there's Israeli Mossad agents there. They've had issues with the Kurdish region there. And now launching attacks in Pakistan. So it's not just Iran anymore using their kind of sub-terror groups. This is Iran Central conducting these attacks. And they felt emboldened here to launch the attack on Pakistan. Pakistan then counterattacking. By the way, both sides say they were launching against terror groups that the other allows to hang out in its territory. Both sides then also claiming that, hey, you kill civilians on our side. And then Iran saying, you kill civilians on our side. So a lot of claims back and forth here. Uh, most significantly, you do see a bunch of countries in the region saying, hey, guys, can you cool it? Because there's a lot happening out there. China in particular saying, hey, we live in this neighborhood too. Can you guys tone it down? with the back and forth. Uh, And so we'll see what transpires here if there's the continuing feeling to have revenge between those two countries. That whole region, Baluchistan, the 600-mile border, you got Afghanistan there that borders both of them. It's a key uh, route for opium shipments and the global drug trade. Uh, And then you have various militant groups there. So there's a lot of geopolitics at play here and a lot of complex relationships because Pakistan's military relies on the U.S., the French, the Chinese. On the other side of Pakistan, by the way, you have India, which has a very bad relationship with Pakistan. They fought a few wars uh, through the years, but they also have a relationship with the US. But in this case, India saying they're on Iran's side. So this is where you know things can escalate regionally as alliances take form. And that's why you have the US, the UN, China saying the last thing we need right now is Iran and Pakistan escalating. So cool it. I was going to joke, we'll have a quiz on all of this later today, but it's not a joke. We actually do have a a roundup, a quiz that we do on Fridays. Yeah, if you guys uh, were paying attention, you could listen to it back. (laughs) We will have our weekly news quiz over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account uh, this afternoon. If you're a premium member, you're familiar with it every Friday. uh, We uh, quiz you on the headlines of the week. It's one of the perks of becoming a Mo News Premium member. You can become a member over at mo.news slash premium and have access to that member's Instagram account. All right, back here at home from the Wall Street Journal. Drug makers kicked off 2024 by raising the list prices for Ozempic, Munjaro, and dozens of other widely used medications. Companies like Novo Nordisk, the maker of Ozempic, and Eli Lilly, which sells Munjaro, raised the listed price on 775 brand name drugs during the first half of January. This is according to a Wall Street Journal analysis. The drug makers raised prices of their medicines by a median of 4.5%, although the prices of some drugs rose by about 10% or more. The median increase is higher than the rate of inflation, which ticked up to 3.4% in December. Wait, so companies didn't just raise prices with inflation. They also took an extra percent or two for themselves? Bingo. Yeah. So among the notable increases here, the price of Ozempic, uh, that diabetes treatment that has now become a a major weight loss drug, Ozempic's up 3.5%. So basically inflation there uh, to about $970 for a month's supply. Munjaro is up 4.5%. That's now $1,070 a month. The company is citing things like market conditions and inflation to uh, defend the increases here. Eli Lilly says it sets its prices according to the medicine's value, efficacy, and safety. Jill, it also comes as we got new data uh, this week on where people in America are taking Ozempic, which states have the most amount of people taking Ozempic, which states have the least amount. These are per capita numbers now, as in per thousand people, so you can basically uh, judge fairly across all 50 states. Kentucky, number one, that's where roughly 21 out of 1,000 people uh, in the state are taking Ozempic. They're followed by West Virginia, Alaska, Mississippi, and Louisiana. These also happen to be the states 
with the highest prevalence of diabetes and obesity. Um, so that makes sense. As far as the states where the least amount of people are taking Ozempic, based on these numbers, Rhode Island, number 50, Massachusetts, 49, Wisconsin, 48, and then Hawaii, uh, 47. Now, keep in mind, these are numbers that come to us from the insurance companies. So uh, this does not account for people taking the drugs and paying out of pocket. All right, now to the latest from the Georgia Trump case, where the DA is now facing questions from the Washington Post. A hearing has been scheduled for February 15th to hear evidence regarding accusations that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and her lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade, engaged in an improper relationship and mishandled public money. Fonnie Willis is the DA leading the 2020 election interference case against former President Trump and more than a dozen co-conspirators in Georgia. The accusations against the DA first came to light in a filing from one of Trump's co-defendants, former campaign aide Mike Roman. Roman claimed that the hiring of Wade, the prosecutor, was improper and unethical because of an ongoing romantic relationship with Willis. The filing claimed that Willis had benefited personally from Wade's income from the case, alleging she had joined him on multiple cruises and other trips unrelated to work that Wade had paid for. Willis's office had paid Wade's law firm more than $650,000 over two years. Yeah, so it's notable here. You got the DA facing her own investigation. Now, there's no issues with the case itself. Uh, This doesn't change the case against Trump and the various co-conspirators. But this is about Willis's personal conduct here. At a minimum, a major distraction from the case uh, that could cause delays in the case. But at maximum here, something that potentially could have major professional or criminal impact on Willis and Wade. Basically, the allegation here, Willis hired Wade and then benefited from it, uh, engaging in unethical behavior. Willis, so far, has not spent too much time publicly uh, addressing things, though she did break her silence earlier this week in a fiery speech at a historic black church in Atlanta. She does not deny or directly address the relationship allegations against her and Wade, though she did describe herself as a, quote, flawed and imperfect public servant, and she referenced the loneliness of her position. But she did push back aggressively when it comes to the claims of whether she hired him inappropriately to do the work on the Trump case. And then she suggested that race played a role in the criticism that she's facing. A reminder, she tapped Wade to lead the Trump case in 2021 at a time that he had little experience prosecuting criminal cases. He had served as a judge in the Atlanta area uh, before this, mostly dealing with traffic tickets and ran a private practice that dealt with family law. But she effectively claimed in that church speech that she's being targeted here because she is black. Uh, We'll await to hear more in uh, future filings here uh, from her side. And then there's going to be that case next month. All right. From CNBC, former Meta operating chief Sheryl Sandberg leaving the company's board of directors In a post on where else? Facebook. Facebook, She she (laughs) writes, with a heart filled with gratitude and a mind filled with memories, I let the meta board know that I will not stand for re-election this May. Sandberg is 54 years old. She joined Facebook back in 2008 as Mark Zuckerberg's top deputy after spending about seven years at Google. In 2012, she became a board member at the company. During her tenure, Facebook rose from a high-flying startup to become one of the most valuable companies in the world, topping a $1 trillion market cap at its peak in 2021. Yeah, they brought her in there as like the adult in the room when it was still coming off of a few years of you know Zuckerberg and a bunch of young uh, recent college grads who had uh, formed that startup uh, out of Harvard, Sandberg coming in to really build the business around uh, Facebook as they went on to acquire things like Instagram, WhatsApp, 
and really build that empire. She announced her departure back in 2022. This followed a bunch of controversies in recent years uh, related to disinformation, misinformation, issues during the COVID pandemic, other issues related to kids and Instagram. You know, you've been tracking all the various controversies related to Facebook in recent years. Uh, it came as the company was also subject to antitrust investigations about how it dealt with competitors. Oftentimes, Sandberg was the uh, person on Capitol Hill testifying before Congress, was the face of the company. And so she stepped down in 2022, but had still served on the board. Uh, and then there's also the nonprofit that she's created. She's dedicated much of her time recently to leanin.org, which is focused on empowering women in the workplace uh, and other related projects. So Moshe, I have to say, I read her book, Lean In, yeah. which is about women in the workplace. It came out more than a decade ago. And one thing that she said in the book really resonated with me. And it actually, I have to admit, helped shape my career. And so I'm just repeating it in case there's any women out there. But she said, don't leave before you leave. So she writes, from an early age, girls get the message they're going to have to choose between succeeding at work and being a good mother. And she talks about how some women would opt to scale back their career goals and turn down opportunities before they're married or before they even have their first child. So she writes, what I am arguing is that the time to scale back is when a break is needed or when a child arrives, not before and certainly not years in advance. The months and years leading up to having children are not the time to lean back but the critical time to lean in. And honestly, that resonated with me. I think I was in my late 20s or early 30s, and I was at a job that I was thinking would give me this great work-life balance when I had a family. And I was literally single. I wasn't even dating anybody. And I remember reading this and being like, what am I doing? I'm staying here just because it's I'm, I'm comfortable. Yeah. Exactly. Protectively thinking five years or 10 years down the line not trying to advance because I was somewhere that was going to be potentially good in the long run. So I actually wound up interviewing Sheryl Sandberg at a different job about something else. And I mentioned that to her and she and she said she you know, really appreciated it. So I, I just want to pass it on because it, it did have a profound impact on me and my career. So stay in the third lane of the expressway until you really have to go back to the first lane. A hundred percent. Got it. All right, from Axios, most U.S. adults are not getting enough sleep. I know that's probably not going to Is that to news, Jill? <laughs> I feel like that's not a surprise to anybody. <laughs> Experts say sleeping seven or more hours is really crucial for your health, but efforts to get more sleep can be focused on the wrong things. So Americans get less than six and a half hours a night on average. This is according to a study that tracked the sleep of Apple Watch users from February to June of 2022, one thing that they found is that in places where it stays lighter later, people tend to stay up and out later. So cities that are on the western edges of their time zones, like Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm. Tallahassee, Florida, much of Indiana and Michigan, they are among those with the latest sunrises and sunsets. And people there generally sleep less. The reason this matters is because experts say sleep is foundational to health. So it doesn't matter if you work out all the time and eat well. If you don't sleep, you are not going to get the gains that you want and you're just not going to feel well. Yeah, I would say uh, sleep studies are a frequent topic here in the speed read. And we've talked about it before, you know, how much more significant uh, sleep is to your long term health in terms of the studies we've seen. So this totally jives. It is an interesting argument, Jill, the western edge of the time zone. Because that would be an argument against permanent daylight savings time that actually darkness earlier is beneficial uh, for sleep. So 
Interesting data there, though anecdotal, of course, just from Apple Watch users. As far as other advice here they have in the story, some of this pretty logical. Uh, Keeping your room cool for better sleep, reducing light exposure before bed as you get your body and internal clock uh, ready for bed. It's something I'm learning to do with the baby, Jill. Just like, let's all wind down right now with less distractions and less light. But of course, Technology is a huge issue there. You know, I know some people fall asleep to the TV or have their phones by bedside. Uh, I've read multiple studies now that uh, keeping your phone in another room or at least across the room also ensures better sleep. So you're not looking at that screen, which also keeps you up later, though I have to say I'm guilty of that as well. One notable thing, according to one of the experts here in the uh, Axios piece, is the belief, the hypothesis here, that some of these sleep gadgets uh, and this data that you're getting from things like the Apple Watch might actually be leading to more stress over the amount of sleep that you're getting, which then makes sleep harder to come by. So in some cases, I see the experts here, Jill, saying that uh, ignorance is bliss when it comes to your sleep, apparently. I totally buy that because if I was wearing an Apple Watch that was tracking my sleep and my REM sleep and when I'm getting up and how many times, I think I'd be so stressed out about it (laughs) that it would make me sleep less. Okay, Mosh, speaking of what should not be stressful, it's Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. Kick it off. What are you watching? Jill, we're down to the Elite Eight of the NFL. I know they don't call it the Elite Eight, but the divisional playoff games (laughs) on the NFC and AFC. Two games tomorrow, two games Sunday. So uh, we'll be watching that. And I know I'm belated here on uh, For All Mankind, and we often bring it up on the podcast, but I finally caught up on season three. This is the Apple Plus show that is effectively an alternate space history, an alternate history of the U.S. beginning in the 60s on the premise the Soviets land on the moon first and how it would have changed our history over the last 40 years. Who would have become president? Technologies that evolve, uh, climate change. It's it's fascinating how they've created this alternate timeline. Anyway, season four is complete. Uh, I've been catching up on it and uh, nerding out on the alternate history that the creators of the show have laid out. It is one of my favorite parts of for all mankind, kind of the the law of unintended consequences. What doesn't happen if, yes. you know, uh, Russia pulls out of Afghanistan, et cetera. Uh, really fascinating. I will be watching Maestro, which is now on Netflix. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, Maestro, the uh, movie about Leonard Bernstein uh, that was actually nominated for a number of awards. I, I don't think it won much in the way of the Golden Globes, Jill, but we'll see how it does at the Oscars. Let me know how it is. Okay, Mosh, what are you reading? Jill? If it's Friday, I'm nerding out on a history book. Of course. So really into this book, The Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek. It's the history of cereal, cereal wars of the late 1800s, early 1900s. Jill, it's fascinating. And, you know, for all of us who know these various cereal brands, what you might not know is that cereal granola actually began as a treatment for stomach conditions by a doctor, Dr. Kellogg out of Michigan. He had uh, an institute where he would bring people because back in the day, They were eating terrible things for breakfast, very unhealthy things for breakfast. So people had a lot of gut issues. So Dr. Kellogg opens up a clinic. He creates the thing. He says is granola. It's a special medication to fix your belly. Ultimately, one of his patients there is a guy named Charlie Post. Charlie Post steals the recipe, creates grape nuts, and Post cereals. Of course, you know, you know the Post brand today. And of course, you know Kellogg cereal, but that's not due to Dr. Kellogg, Dr. John Kellogg. He was straight up, he was a doctor. This is all about treating people. But his younger brother, Will, said, yo, bro, we can make some money off of this invention of yours, granola. So they get into a whole fight. For years, they're suing each other in court. Eventually, Will wins and allows them to make a profit 
off of the treatments. Uh, meanwhile, post, there's a fascinating history there. He would die uh, relatively young. His daughter, Meriwether, you might be familiar in certain areas with the Meriwether Post Pavilion in uh, the D.C. area, takes over the business, becomes basically the most powerful female CEO in uh, American history there. She sees a future in frozen foods, buys a company called Birdseye, builds a big home for herself in South Florida called Mar-a-Lago. And so there's an interesting historical 100-year story here, but it really takes you to the roots of uh, the cereal industry and a fascinating, it's filled with lawsuits, stolen recipes. uh, And anyway, that's my pitch for the Kellogg's. Jill, what are you reading? Okay, I'm not reading that, um, although (laughs) it does sound fascinating. Jill, Jill, I just summarized 300 pages for you, so feel free to move on. I feel like it is the perfect kind of like 10-part series that Netflix could pick up. Um, but I'm going to be reading this article in The Atlantic. It's called, There Are Too Many Ways to Exercise. Choosing a Workout Regimen Has Become a Workout in and of Itself. And it's written by this woman who says she's a new mom. She's finally, 2024 goals, wants to get into shape. So she says, with my new motivation, I first had to find a workout regime. Scrolling through social media for inspiration, I saw athletes of every variety across my feed people sweating it out at a Navy SEAL-style workout, a Thai-inspired kickboxing class, a workout designed and taught by former inmates, yoga, not just yoga anymore, could be hot, aerial, acrobatic, drake, and even goat. You get the point. But I totally feel her, right? There are, are like a million and one ways to work out. And I guess that's good, but it also... Feels overwhelming. It, it does feel overwhelming. And a lot of people who actually study happiness, um, especially where we are right now, say we are just overwhelmed by too many decisions and too many choices. Yeah, choice can be overwhelming. Jill, remember P90X? I got those DVDs. I was playing I loved that for a while. P90X. P90X, Tybo. I mean, listen, we've like if you go through the years, there's just been so many workouts. And I've gone through my own phase. I was doing like spin for a while and then yoga. I need a class. I, I'm not very good working out on my own unless uh, I, there's a scheduled class that I've paid for. So uh, good luck choosing your next workout based on the story. All right, Mosh, what are you eating? Tell us about this cheese we've been hearing about. From workout to food, halloumi cheese. Are you familiar with it? It's a, from Cyprus. Sort of like feta, but like spongier. Anyway, obsessed with it recently, uh, grilled halloumi. Alex was making uh, grilled halloumi and egg uh, pita sandwiches that have been a great breakfast item. Actually, really easy to freeze and then reheat, and they're toasty and good uh, like that. So uh, this is my pitch for halloumi cheese yourself. Well, Mosh, all this talk about popcorn, National Popcorn Day. I'm going to get myself a bag of kettle corn popcorn and enjoy it. I'm glad the top of the podcast has inspired the end of the podcast. Bookends, Mosh. That's that's <laughs> what we're about here at uh, the Mo News Podcast. And on that note, thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Yeah, thanks to all of you for listening this week. Stay warm this weekend and we'll see you on Monday. All right, bye everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.